Hello, and welcome to the Collider Podcast. I'm Collider Senior Editor Matt Goldberg, and with me is Managing Editor Adam Chitwood. Howdy, folks. 2020 is mercifully over. <laughs> Posting this done. on the last day of the year that has been <laughs> awful. And it feels a little frivolous to talk about, like, here were my favorite movies. But, like, I don't know, movies pro- provide an escape. There was still great art this year. And I don't know. I feel like it, I mean, it's obviously like to say it's a, it was a weird year is an understatement, but I still feel like there were good movies that were released or are about to be released that deserve attention. And I feel like that's what these lists are for. It's not to self aggrandize the critic. It's not to say, I look how many movies I saw. It's to say you have a busy schedule. If you can only make time for 10 movies from 2020, make it these 10. And that's sort of what the purpose of this is. Now, to add to that a caveat, there are going to be movies I know on Adam's list and my list that have not come out yet and will probably not come out till February. But we're counting them as 2020 movies because they screened at festivals in 2020 and they've been largely screened for critics in 2020. So they're not Like a film that falls outside that classification would be something like Judas and the Black Messiah, which is also due to come out in February, but no one's seen it yet. It hasn't played at any festivals. As far as I know, critics haven't seen it, or if they have seen it, they're not allowed to to write about it. But I mean, Adam, you're in a critics organization. I'm in a critics organization. I haven't gotten a Judas and the Black Messiah screener. Um, So as far as I know that, so the reason like that film is not in the running is because of just how that works out. Whereas films like, let's say Minari, like that played at Sundance, you know, it's going to be released in February, but it's been seen. And a lot of people have seen it. And it's also like, this is kind of a, yeah, and this is kind of a one-time exception because this happens every year. They do, like, some people are like, oh, I saw this at a festival, so I'm going to put it on my list. But we're doing this because, like, specifically films like Minari and Nomadland are set for release in February as part of Oscars positioning for no other reason than Oscars positioning. Right. If the Oscar eligibility window ended on December 31st like it usually does, they would have been released in December or, like, a limited release in yeah, December. Yeah, a very limited December release before probably going wide in January. Yeah, so now, because of COVID, they've extended the eligibility window to the, your film has to be released by the end of February to qualify for these Oscars, these next Oscars. So no one at the end of 2021 is going to put Nomadland on their list of, like, the best films of 2021, I don't think, because it's a movie that's in the running for the Oscars for technically 2020 i don't know the weirdness of this year has yeah. extended into our top 10 lists yeah. so and and there are films that we saw this year that are really 2021 releases at this point that yeah. have just been pushed so for instance like uh we saw a great film at sundance this year called zola um that was intended to be released in 2020 but now it's just been taken off the calendar completely yeah. it will probably be released in 2021 but we don't know when so it's not i didn't make it eligible for my list yeah same here Um, even though it's a great film and people should look out for it, but we'll talk more about that whenever it comes out. Mm -hmm. Um, so what we're going to do is just going to run down our top 10 lists, um, and talk about our films. I'm sure I know there's some overlap. Um, so we'll just, uh, when we, when we hit that, we'll, we'll come to that. But Adam, uh, I'll start with you. What was your number 10? My number 10 is Mank. Mank. I liked Mank. Mank. I don't care who knows it. (laughs) I (laughs) wish I liked Mank. I I don't dislike it, but it, it, it has not stayed with me. Even like, I know David Fincher films can improve on like repeat viewings, but 
like Gone Girl, like stuck to my ribs, man. Like that yeah. film, like got under my skin and like it, it hit me immediately. And Mank is just, it's a little remote for me, even though I like, I dig the subject matter and I think it's yeah. really well crafted. It didn't quite click for me. Which I totally understand. And also we should preface this by saying our list could change slightly from when you see them posted on Collider. My list will be posted on uh, Wednesday, December 30th. And Matt's list is 31st. Is that right? Yes, 31st. Um, so you can read our written list at that time with kind of, uh, you know, maybe better formed thoughts on why we put these movies here. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I really liked Mank. I, I really liked it the first time I saw it. I watched it a second time and really liked it that second time. Um, it's a film I, I really admire its craft, I think goes a long way towards me. But I also I kind of like the idea that it's a, it's about this guy who was kind of ambling around Hollywood and writing anonymously and was kind of fine to do that. And he gets this chance to shoot his shot at, at greatness and he does it and he wants his name on it. Um, and I don't know, I, I think, you know, it's it's not my favorite Fincher film, but I definitely have some some qualms with it. But I liked it enough to put it on this list. Uh, it's it's a film that I'll probably go back to um, many times in the future. So I don't know. I really enjoyed Mank. And I just also thought it was just a really I mean, who better than Fincher, who's like this technical magician to experiment with, like, you know, black and white photography and mono soundtrack and, you know, Reznor and Ross doing a 1930 score. I really love all the uh, technical aspects of it. Mm hmm. So. Um. Cool. Yeah. For me, I, I, for my number 10 slot, I went for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Um, and it was a very close between that and, um, One Night in Miami because they're both stage plays that are being filmed, uh, centered around, uh, black casts and also sort of their stories about black history in the 20th century and, and where does that power reside and who gets to have it and what are the costs of it? Um, so it's almost like a tie, but I don't really like doing ties on, on the list. Cause again, <laughs> the purpose of the list is to whittle, whittle things down. And I gave Ma Rainey the edge because I was just floored by the performances, especially Chaz, Chadwick Boseman. Um, I just think it's, it's so well done. Um, and watching him and Viola Davis play off each other is, is electric and, and the supporting cast is so good. Uh, and I really feel like you know, sometimes the stage origins work against a movie, but here they really work to its benefit because it is kind of a pressure cooker. It's this hot day in Chicago. They're all stuck in this recording studio. Nobody's ready. Everyone has their own kind of agendas and they're all conflicting and it, and it works. And I, I was really impressed with Ma Rainey. Joey puts on all of Ross's clothes. <laughs> you're calling it a bottle episode is, is what you're doing. The one, the one where no, isn't that the one where no the one's, one where ready? No one's you just, ready. You just said it, you know, no one's ready. I just uh, took me to that very bad joke. Um, but I also really liked Ma Rainey's Black Bottom uh, it, just outside my top 10. Uh, but I thought Chadwick and Viola's performances were both incredible. I mean, Chadwick's monologue is phenomenal. Um, and I'm already getting some blowback. I, I did my best actor predictions and I have him at number one and I, I'm getting some blowback of people saying, you know, he shouldn't win just because he died. And even if Chadwick were alive, I think he would be the front runner. Yeah, if he were alive, he would be the front runner. It's like, that good of a performance. Yeah. I mean, that to me is sort of like saying like. I would say you that's an easier case to make with like Heath Ledger winning best supporting yeah. actor, but only because that's a superhero movie and like the Academy wasn't going to recognize superhero movies in 2008 <laughs> until, <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> 
unless yeah. someone died. And I think that's an indictment of the Academy more than anything, but that's just a phenomenal performance. You know, it's not yeah. just like a sign off. And I think Viola is really incredible here and gave me kind of Denzel Washington vibes a little bit. Like it's just a really commanding, like tat, like she commands the room when uh, that she's in, because the character is a very uh, imposing character. It is, and there's that very much like I don't care if you like it. That yes. sort of yeah. confidence enough to be like I, yes, I am a movie star. Yes, this is a this is a prestige performance. I don't need you to like me. That's how yeah. good I am. Yeah. And like you, I think it's a it's a really fascinating story about these, uh, you know, black people trying to live their lives throughout Chicago. And there's this really sad juxtaposition between Ma Rainey, who knows her place and understands where she fits. And then Chadwick Boseman's character, who is a bit more naive about uh, his future and his prospects in this industry. Yeah. yeah. So maybe I talked myself into putting it on the top. Ten. Like, maybe top ten. maybe I've convinced you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. What's your number nine? My number nine kind of surprised me, and it's it's Sound of Metal, which I know is probably on your list. It is on my list. It's okay. at the number two slot. Ooh, there we go. Uh, so you saw this at Sundance. I did not see this at Sundance. I saw this. No, no. I saw this at TIFF. Oh, at TIFF in last 20, year. In 2019. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I so I watched it on Amazon, and I really wish I had seen it in a theater just because the sound design, I think, is incredible. Um. And as I was watching it, it, you know, it was really striking and compelling. And I thought Riz Ahmed's performance was really incredible. Um, and I finished it and I was like, that was a really good movie. But it was one of those movies that like I couldn't stop thinking about after I saw it. And I, what I really admire about it is that it's, you know, you might, it, it's about a drummer who's going deaf. And it's not about deafness, like uh, per se, essentially. It's kind of about a guy whose life gives him a curveball and instead of deciding to accept it and move on with his life he keeps trying to go back to his previous life which hinders him which i think is something that we can all relate to but not at the it doesn't shortchange the deaf community and there are a lot of actors from the deaf community in the film who give really incredible performances i think paul racy uh, is phenomenal in the movie um but i don't know i found it a really moving relatable story and riz's performance like it's a character that at times you kind of hate, like you think he's being really silly and selfish, uh, but that performance makes it someone you are still kind of rooting for. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, yeah, it's really powerful in how it's handled. Um, and I think, you know, if not for Bozeman, I would say, you know, Ahmed would probably be my favorite performance of the year. Yeah. Um, but the sound and the sound design is incredible. Oh, it's so good. It puts you in his headspace. So you're hearing, you know, when he first gets to the deaf community and they're signing, there are no subtitles because you are in this character's point of view and he does not understand sign language yet. So he doesn't know what they're saying. And a kind as it progresses, as his as he progresses throughout the film, you start to kind of understand more. Yeah. Um, my number nine, number nine is a film. My number nine is Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, uh, which is a film I saw at Sundance. And it's kind of a film that never really has a chance with an audience. It's an abortion <laughs> drama. It's very heavy. It's independent. It has no movie stars. Um, oh, and then it came, it was came out like right as as the pandemic ramped up and we all went into quarantine. So I don't know. If, you know, if I were focused features, I would be like, put this on a streaming service immediately. I don't care what, it, you know, if we lose money, just let's get it out there because it's certainly like it's hard to find, but it's really well done. And I feel like it's not it's never maudlin. It's never mawkish. But 
um, you know, it sort of highlights, you know, the truth of, you know, what, what it, if you were a teenage girl living in a rural town in the Northeast and you need to go to New York city, cause that's the only place you can get an abortion without your parents' consent. Like that's what you need to do. And it's like, I, I mean, obviously it's not going to win any over a film. It's not going to win over anyone who's anti-abortion, but I feel like the performances are so strong and the, the emotional core, it, it just really shook me. And it's a film I haven't really been able to shake all year. It's a film that I know I need to see, but it is hard for me to be like, all right, now I'm going to watch Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. It's the perfect movie to see at Sundance, where it's like, all yes, right, exactly. in this slot, I'm going to use this slot to go and see this movie. Yeah. All right, what's your number eight? Uh, my number eight is The Vast of Night, uh, which... <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of Vast of Night fans on Collider, I'll say and that. you hate oh. The Vast of Night. I don't hate it. I'm just like, <laughs> really? I don't really it does not about anything it's just it's just very well crafted i think i think that has value i mean to me it it was just very uh, transfixing i think if i think craft in service of without service of theme or character is is ultimately vapid all right well i liked this movie so. <laughs> well i know and that's the thing i'm in the minority like it's on your list it's on Vinny's list it's on tom's list i think it's on greg's list like it's i think it's on haley's list too it's, it's on it's on it's Haley's gonna list be number too. one on collider and it's gonna be like, number ah! one on collider <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah I, I mean it just felt in a and it, i think it also came at just the right time because this was mm -hmm. shortly after lockdown and people really had nowhere to go and nothing to see. And it was people kind of going through and watching stuff on streaming, but it was a lot of stuff you had seen before. Um, but the Vast of Night just felt exciting in that it was this indie that felt like it had just fallen out of a time capsule from the 50s, the way it was shot, the way it was written, the way it was acted. Um, and it was just really vexing. Like it's something that really grabbed me. The, this kind of sci-fi story again, it just feels like kind of like a lost twilight zone episode or something. Um, I found the characters super compelling, uh, easy to root for. And it was just something that like had me from, from the moment it started to the moment it ended while I was sitting on my couch in my living room with like the lights on and everything. Uh, and that's, you know, no small task. And, you know, for that reason, I know alone, it was something that really stuck with me, but I also thought, you know, the filmmaking really knew how to showcase the dialogue because the dialogue is very quick and witty. Um, but the filmmaking never got in the way of that. There are a lot of long takes in the film that I thought were uh, really well executed to make that dialogue sing. There's an entire sequence where, you know, they're speaking over the ham radio to this guy who's relaying his experience with extraterrestrials. Uh, and it's, it's super compelling and there's no visuals or you know explosions or anything it's just a guy talking over a radio and so it's the performances and it's the the cinematography that's really kind of driving that home so i don't know i i was i was a big fan of it i think the ending is a little like it's okay um but it was unique in a year where i was looking for something different looking for something to kind of take my mind off of things and you know i don't know for me that was enough it's, you know, hearing you talk about it, it feels like I want because I, I got a screener on my computer and uh, okay. watching films on your computer is never ideal. Yeah. Um, so I feel like maybe if I rewatch it on my TV, maybe that'll it'll benefit from a repeat viewing. Yeah. I mean, Roger Deakins likes it. and Steven Soderbergh like it. So if you don't like it, then they hate you. Yeah. And I, I don't want that. <laughs> and you can't live with yourself. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, so what is right, your so number my, eight, Mr. Fancy Pants? <laughs> my number eight is Time, the documentary Time. Uh, I could have honestly could have put like made my list like half documentaries because like yeah. I thought Athlete A was great. Boy State was great. My Octopus Teacher was great. Tiger um, King. Never saw Tiger King. <laughs> and it's not a movie. But I. But uh, yeah, I the just. Vow. There were a lot of, what? <laughs> Sorry, the vow. Oh, God. <laughs> Damn you. Uh, all right. So no, but I, I thought time was really impressive. So time covers basically the 20 year incarceration of of this man um rob rich uh from the perspective of his wife fox rich they were both convicted of uh attempted robbery but she got a lighter sentence he was basically sent away for life even though like i mean for like a 60 year sentence and it was their first offense no one was harmed it was a dumb mistake, but just, you know, the system loves incarcerating people. And the genius of time is that it's because it's from Fox's perspective, it's all about her trying to free him um, through the system while also raising their children. And it's just a really remarkable thing about this, about life and, and, and persevering. And if you've ever had a family member who's been incarcerated, you know, like you, you know that it's a, it's something where on the one hand, we don't want to just throw out that, that justice system because we don't know what would replace it. <laughs> um, but also what we have now is not working. Uh, the, the toll of mass incarceration has, has veered strongly into cruel and unusual and there the, it can't exist this way. And so time what it does is just it it just goes at a human level. It doesn't try to bring in talking heads to talk about mass incarceration. It just tells this story, and it does so uh, incredibly effectively. And it's just eighty one minutes too. It, it's really a, a remarkable documentary, and I'm glad I watched it. I need to see that film. We should also tell people where they. So, Vast of Night is on Amazon. Where is Time? Is Time streaming? Time is on Amazon. Okay. Time is on Amazon. Uh, never, rarely, sometimes, always is on you know, rent it <laughs> from somewhere. Yeah. Is and, on Amazon. And uh, Mal Rainey is on Netflix. And Menk is on Netflix. All right. So what's your number seven? My number seven is Minari. That's uh, my which, number seven. Hey, hey. serendipitous. Uh, which I saw at Sundance. And As did I. Absolutely blew me away. And it sounds reductive to call it this year's Moonlight, but there are... I mean, there are some comparisons. So it's Lee Isaac Chung is the writer director. It's kind of an autobiographical story and is told through, through the eyes of a young boy. Um, so it it follows this Korean American family who moved from California to Arkansas um, in the hopes of starting a farm and essentially living out the American dream. Stephen Yun plays the patriarch of the family. Um, and from the moment they get there, it's it's hard and difficult and uh, uh much more challenging than they thought it would be and it's just the story of this father really trying to persevere to build a better life for himself and for his family and the difficulty that that entails um and there was a little bit of culture clash with the people of arkansas but it, you know i kind of appreciated that it stayed focused on this family and didn't become uh you know kind of racism story um not that racism doesn't exist but you know those stories uh, you know 
exist and we see a lot of them and you're seeing this you know you're telling a story of a group of people through the eye you know through the prism of racism and this is really a family drama and it's really honestly a story about the american dream it's incredibly relatable um and the marital struggles that uh you know happen um so the mother brings her mother over from korea to live with them and that creates more kind of strife and and troubles and it's shot beautifully. I, I really love the cinematography in it. And uh, I just think it's a really beautiful, emotional story that uh, really, really struck me when I saw it at Sundance. And uh, I can't wait for other people to be able to see it. Yeah, I, I really don't have anything to add to that. I think you really summed it up nicely. It'll be out in theaters uh, in February from A24. Yeah. That's great. Um, so what's your number six? My number six is Lover's Rock. Uh, okay, that's my number four. Okay. Uh, so um, this is part of, part of the Small Axe anthology from Steve McQueen. That is maybe a TV series or maybe a series it's of It's a five-film movie <laughs> anthology. We're not doing Is It TV? No, it's five movies. It's five <laughs> movies that are thematically, that, are, that share a setting and a theme. <laughs> and uh yeah so in the uk it's on bbc in america it's on amazon lover's rock is the second film in the anthology and i had been hearing a lot of people talking about it but i didn't want to watch it until i saw mangrove first which i watched and really liked um and that one's just outside my top 10 uh and lover's rock is almost performance art like it's so it takes place in 1980 in west london and it's just about a group of people at a house party and listening to the music of their people. And so it's a, it's a community story really. So it's a, you know, the people that are coming to this house party are from the West Indies or have, or have family from the West Indies. And so they're eating their own food. They're listening to their own music. They're in this kind of bubble where they can dance and sing and be free. And throughout the film, there are little moments where you see people not from their community. So largely white people peeking in and it's kind of like in a, uh, it's almost like the magic gets popped a little bit when you see those those and you they have to like go back into their bubble. Um, but it's 68 minutes. It doesn't have a ton of dialogue in it. The cinematography is astounding because it's just a bunch of shots of hands and faces and bodies as they're moving. It's wall to wall music as music is playing in this house party. Um, and it tells kind of a love story between two people who meet at the party. Uh, but man, it just blew me away. It's one of those things where it just kind of like enraptures you. And it is the one film, the like main movie of 2020. I am angry that I have not been able to see in a theater. Yeah, it would have been great in a theater because it's so experiential. Yeah, It makes you feel like you're in the party, but not, not, you know, co-opting it or, or anything like that. It's just, I think the best thing Small Axe does as a series is it sort of says, you know, this is the value of a community and culture and and what it and what these people are together rather yeah. than separate. And that's the thing about Lovers Rock, like it's not real, like there are individual characters, but it's really more about the group. And watching, you know, this dynamic play out just feels so rich and lively. It so feels like I was getting to sort of look at a community that I am not a part of, but gave me such respect and awe of of their culture well because as you see throughout the rest of small acts you see the community operating within the larger uk community mm -hmm. so yes 
they are having to, and we all do this, you're having to put on a different mask or a different face for different people and present yourself in a different way, or other people see you in a different way. And this is just an entirely insular film about this community with them being themselves, nothing but themselves. Uh, and it's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, so uh, my number, uh, well, what was your number five? Um, oh, I'm sorry. Number, we skipped, yeah, what's wait, your we number skipped my number six. Yes. So my number six is Palm Springs. Oh, okay. That's my number one. That's your number one. That's my number uh, well, one. Let you talk, I'm going to let you talk <laughs> about Palm Springs. I don't want to steal your number one. Okay. We'll get, we'll get to, we'll circle back to Palm Springs when we talk about our, our number one. Our ones. number one. All right. Then, all right. So my number five is Soul. Okay. Um, which, uh, if you just listened to our previous episode, we talked about Soul at length. Um, but I was just, really moved by it um because you know i think it's it's almost become cliche at this point it's like pixar movies make you cry and all your emotions and um but i i gotta say like i think that sort of short changes how thoughtful they can be um and i think soul is is really thoughtful and really tries to take it time it's like what does it mean to be alive and especially in a culture like america where so much of like your identity is based on what you produce you know, we talk about people being productive members of society, but that's not living. That's not about being alive. And it's not to say that it's not, you, you know, you shouldn't have a spark or you shouldn't have some sort of purpose that makes you happy, but that's not, you're not measured solely by what you either accomplish or don't accomplish. And I think that that's a really powerful message. Um, and I really like that they made a film about that. I like soul. It's pretty good. Let's <laughs> be covered in the last book. Yeah, you right. don't want to talk about. I, I think you're right. It feels different from anything Pixar has ever made in in a really good way. Um, I did, something I didn't say is I I know people who go to Pixar movies and their like review of it as like it was funny or it wasn't funny, and people view animated films through that prism of like oh there were a lot of really good jokes it was so cute and so funny and i love the cute thing and that's you know if you look at illumination entertainment films they kind of market them that way of like oh there's the cute dog or there's the cute whatever um this movie has none of that it's just like uh kind of unabashedly like oh, this is a this is a, a movie for grown-ups kind of so yeah i really admire that about it so uh my number four was lover's rock what was your number four uh, we haven't done my number five yet. Oh, number, we haven't done your number five. Sorry. Yeah. What's your number five? My number five is News of the World. Interesting. Which I just really loved. <laughs> like, it's just, I, I, you know, I was curious to see it because I like Paul Greengrass and, and I like Tom Hanks. And I really, like, really loved it while I was watching it. And I loved it when it was over. And I was like, yeah, I really love that movie. And I didn't necessarily think it would be something that would stay with me, but it has like through this whole time. And it's just such a well, like handsomely crafted, traditional, classical filmmaking movie. Like it's a movie with a capital M. And we didn't get very many of those this year. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, it, you know, it's it's just a really great Western that I think also speaks to the world we live in today in a really, really smart way, I think. Um, you know, not only in, uh, you know, Tom Hanks plays a newsreader uh, and the film takes place a few years after the end of the Civil War and he goes town to town reading the news. And, you know, obviously in some of these southern towns, uh, the news from the Yankees is not taken very well. 
Uh, and some people only only want to hear some news and and not hear others. But ultimately, it's a it's a film kind of about the power of stories. And, you know, you can see when he's in his element, he's telling stories to people and stories have the power to inspire and stories have the power to change people, uh, you know, who they are on the inside and, and how they feel and how they think. Um, and I don't know that that's just a through line that happens throughout the film. And I, I just found it really moving in his relationship with this young girl that he finds. It's almost like a reverse searchers. Like he's not taking the girl. So he finds this girl who has been captive. Uh, she was captured by native Americans and has been raised by them for the last like six years, I think. And is now orphaned again. So he's taking her to distant relatives uh, and they traverse, you know, difficult territory and there are shootouts and gun battles and stuff. But he's not a big swaggering John Wayne. He's a newsreader. So, you know, seeing him wield a gun and everything is kind of sweet. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling, but I, I just found it. I, I just really love this movie. No, and I mean, it's really impressive because as I saw on Twitter this weekend, Tom Hanks has never been in a great movie. Oh so, my. Oh, my God. <laughs> that, that take that was insane. He's, he's not like Jimmy Stewart, about? who has killed people. <laughs> and that's why he'll never be as good as Jimmy Stewart until he murders. I didn't click on the link. Is that what they said? The argument was is that because Jimmy Stewart has been to war, as he went to war, that made him a better actor than Tom Hanks who has not been in war and thus far and therefore cannot grow. And then someone's like, yeah, Tom Hanks has never really been in a great movie. And at that point <laughs> I was just like, okay, well then your taste is terrible or you haven't seen that many movies either way. It's the same thing with Meryl Streep that I feel like we take them for granted. And I, you know, especially with Meryl Streep, it's like, Oh God, she wins Oscars all the time. She's won two. Like it, it's not like she wins Oscars all the time. It's that and she gets nominated all the gets time. It's nominated all the time. But like the iron lady was her first in a super long time. Um, and I think we just take for granted how good they are, how easy and natural it is. And I have heard stories of Tom Hanks working with Meryl on the set of the post. And Meryl is very much like, we got to get down and we got to do the work. Like she wants to learn her lines and she wants to do a good job. And I get that same sense from Tom Hanks. Like he wants to do a good job. And not only through the course of his career has he, you know, made a bunch of different movies, but I feel like he's still working to be a better actor. And you see that in News of the World. He is working mm -hmm. towards, it's a different kind of character than he's not just playing the same guy we always right. see and love. And that's really but striking. He still like brings his like Tom Hanks decency to it. Yeah. So he's bringing that, you know, as one of the last few movie stars, he's brings a baggage with him that you mm -hmm. carry into the film. And unless it's something like Cloud Atlas, where you kind of have to forget it because he's playing terrible human beings in half of that movie. Um, it's something that kind of helps you with the character. And yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I, I think it's a very sweet story and i was very moved by it and i think it's a really great swing from paul greengrass who really switched up his from his docudrama you know style to a yeah, more no. classical western style and did it really well because and that's not an easy thing to do because we've seen a lot of filmmakers like oh i'm gonna do this now and it's like oh no go back go back to the thing you were doing you're not very good so was that your number five or your number four that was my number five all right what's your number four my number four is promising young woman that's my number three. Okay, <laughs> here we go. I'll let you talk about promising young woman. Let me talk. Yeah, let me, a white man, talk about promising yeah. young woman. Um, I I will be the voice of authority here. Uh, so this is when we both saw it Sundance, and we were like, "Oh, this is gonna rile some people up." <laughs> and now I don't know because I don't know. Like, I mean, it's coming out on Christmas Day. Uh, same with News of the World. Yeah. Uh, just to back up a bit, Soul is on Disney Plus. Palm Springs is on uh, Hulu. Um, 
Lover's Rock is part of the Small Axe series, and that's on Amazon. But Promising Young Woman will be in theaters on Christmas Day. And um, it's a film about rape culture. And it's really smartly, it, it's, it's, it positions itself as sort of a revenge film, like that Carrie Mulligan is taking down all these sleazy guys who take home drunk women and try to take advantage of them. And what makes the film hold together is it's just Emerald Fennell, who, who wrote and directed it, made such clever decisions. Like she she hired guys who typically play the sweet guy. So like Adrian Brody and Christopher Mintz Plassey. Adam like, Brody. Not Adam Brody. Brody. <laughs> Not Adrian Brody. Who, 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 oof, that'd be a different movie. Adam Brody. Um, yeah. Uh, and, and then makes them into creeps. And because, like, that's the thing. Like these guys don't see themselves as creepy, but they are. And... I think Carrie Mulligan just gives a fantastic performance because it's it's a performance that's yes she's you know carrying out this sort of very thoughtful revenge plot but there's a sadness and self-destruction at the heart of it that she doesn't see herself as some sort of hero but more that she's doomed by the fatalism that is pushing her towards in, towards this mission in the first place. And I think the the sort of balancing act of it all really makes it a remarkable film. And it's one I'm, I'm, I'm eager to revisit. I, I watched it for a second time recently uh, in anticipation of this top 10 list and was blown away all over again. And also when you watch it a second time, there are things you pick up on that you're like, oh, that was really smart. That was yeah. really well done. Um, it's it's a really bold film. And I, I also love that it's not... It's not in like this greedy, this gritty, like seedy world that's all grime focused. Like it's candy colored and and colorful and poppy. Like it is enjoyable and entertaining and fun. Um, but it's also searing and will absolutely gut you. And I think the way that she dis disconstructs the nice guy is so brilliant. Uh, and mm. you know, it it, it is a, it is about rape culture and it is about um, culpability. And this idea that, it, you know, to change rape culture, we have to change who we hold accountable for these things. And it can't just be this one person and it can't just be only under these circumstances. And it can't just be, well, you get a pass and you get a pass because you didn't do anything. And, you know, you were only doing your job and, you know, right. you were only doing this thing. Um, it can't be that anymore. Like that, that is the system that is in place that allows this to continue to happen and for people to continue to not be held accountable for their actions and for women's lives to be ruined and men's lives to go on like normal or flourish. Um, yeah. So it is absolutely infuriating and it, it hits its mark right on target. Yeah. Um, yes. So that was my number four. And that, so what's and, your number? Have you done your number four? My number four was Lovers Rock. Okay. And my number three was Promising Young Woman. So just keep just keep sniping. <laughs> just keep. Uh, what was your num What was your number three? Uh, probably gonna snipe it. It's Nomadland. Did I? Yeah, that's it? my number one. So <laughs> let's hold off on talking about about that one. And What's my number, number two three? was my number two. My number what? What's your number three? My number three was Promising Young Woman. You just okay. keep taking them from me. <laughs> uh, my number two was Sound of Metal. So what was your number? What was your number two? Uh, this is not on your list. Uh, my number two is David Byrne's American Utopia, which I haven't seen. So, which, so it's ostensibly a concert documentary, but not really. And Spike Lee directed it. David Byrne of Talking Heads fame put on this show called American Utopia that was on Broadway in the before times. Uh, and Spike Lee came down. Uh, David Byrne, I guess, knew him and say, "Came, come and take a look at it." And afterwards, Spike Lee said, "Yeah, I want to shoot this." And it is. 
and this may be a consequence of the pandemic or something, but it is one of the most like profoundly human experiences I've ever had watching something because it is a performance piece and they perform songs from talking heads. They perform covers of songs uh, from people like Janelle Monet um, and it's David Byrne and his band. And they are all wearing the same suits. They're all barefoot. The band members have instruments that they can carry. So the drummer has a, a drum that sits on top of him. So everyone is using their bodies in motion to perform these pieces. And it's a it's a film about human connection and the power of human connection. And what Spike Lee does so beautifully is the audience is a part of the film. So the audience is not a part of the show, but in these shows, because these songs are famous, because people are moved by this music, they're up and they're dancing and they're singing and they're clapping. And Spike Lee shows this audience. It is not a he's not trying to present the Broadway show as, you know, happening in a tiny box. He opens the world up. And so as I was sitting there on my couch in quarantine, you know, uh, uh, just craving human connection, I was really moved by this story about the power of human connection and about um the need for us to work together and to see each other and to touch each other, not, you know, uh, in the larger sense and kind of coming together as human beings. Um, and I, it's on HBO max. Now I was, I was kind of blown away by it. I'm a fan of the, of talking heads. Uh, and I'd be curious to see if someone who isn't a fan of talking heads, uh, enjoys it as much as I did, but, uh, you know, there are spoken portions of it and he kind of tells the story. It just is, it's a really moving piece of art. And because it's my list, I put it at number two. As as well, you should. Um, <laughs> yeah, I need to see that one. Uh, so let Turn me talk your speakers a bit about... up loud when you watch it. Okay. So let me talk about my number one of the year, Nomadland, which to me also provided that sense of connection. And I feel like the thing about Nomadland, um, if you haven't, if you've seen Chloe Zhao's previous film, The Writer, it, it'll give you a good sense of kind of what she, that sort of realistic but humanistic tone that she brings to her films. And, you know, Nomadland, uh, Francis McDormand plays this woman whose who's town basically, the factory shut down and the town basically ceased to exist. Like it was, and and that was the end of the town. And her, her husband has passed away. And so she's just decided to live as a nomad. She has a van and just wants to kind of follow work where it is and just live without a house. And like, if someone's like, you're homeless, she's like, no, I'm not homeless, I'm houseless. And it's sort of a, a really interesting reckoning with where America is right now when, in a post-recession environment and where America has arguably died and is not coming back. And what do you do in that wasteland? Do you bemoan for what was or do you find the beauty that still is that cannot be taken away, the natural beauty of this world, the beauty of human connection? Um, can you set aside the you know, capitalist barriers uh, or, or goalposts that keep moving and then disappear. And it's just a really beautiful film, I think, about where America is right now. But not with, it doesn't have any cynicism to it. It doesn't have a hard edged about it. It's just very, like I said, humanistic. And and the way it sort of connects you to these world and these, these people, it, it in a world, in a year that we were all stuck inside, I was very much like, I want to get in a car and go drive somewhere <laughs> and see these, these remarkable natural phenomenon and connect with people. And I think, you know, Nomadland really, and especially like, I think it would have moved me in any year, but especially in this year, it, it really stuck with me. And that's why it's my, uh, my favorite film of the year. 
Yeah, that movie really blew me away um, and also just made me so deeply sad, especially for the first like 20 minutes. Um, I think something that's really striking about this nomad community, at least the people that um, Francis McDormand's character comes into contact is they all carry with them some kind of trauma uh, and some kind of grief and some kind of pain. But what I think the film does a really great job of is humanizing these people that society too often either casts aside or ignores altogether. Um, you know, everyone has a story. Everyone has a life that they've lived. Even the person flipping your burgers or the person making your package at Amazon, they have the uh, their own pain and things that they've gone through and troubles. And I think far too often, especially when it comes to the service industry, we look at people and, and just see them as there to serve us and not as human beings. And I think this film really dimensionalizes and humanizes and shows, you know, all of these people are humans and they all have their own stories and they all have their own things that they've gone through. And just because you had a bad day doesn't make you special. Um, and just kind of understanding that, that humanity, that human connection. I think that's something that the nomad culture that you see throughout the film is they kind of connect in that regard. Mm -hmm. And it's about being together and seeing one another as humans and living through life together. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's really beautiful. And I, I, I hope to see it in theaters because I was just yeah. also the cinematography is stunning. And I, yes, I, I really do think Chloe Zhao deserves to win best director this year in terms of all the films I've seen. I think she, she stands heads and shoulders above everyone else. I agree with that. I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I cannot wait to see what Eternals looks like. I have heard that it is the vast majority of it was shot on location. So I think that's one regard in which it'll be different from other Marvel movies, but we'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, tell me a little bit about uh, about uh, Palm Springs. Palm Springs. I saw this at Sundance as well uh, and was blown away by it, but also did not know how relevant it would be to our life <laughs> this year. Uh, you know, this story, it's a time loop story of Andy Samberg stuck in this time loop, living the same day over and over again. And he pulls this woman into it, this stranger, Krista Miliati. Uh, and the day is a day of a wedding. and. Palm Springs to me, I mean, it, it's incredibly funny and I think it's incredibly inventive and smart with the way it handles its time loop premise. But I mean, you've seen this theme on my list and on Matt's list. I think we all strove for human connection this year. And to me, Palm Springs is about how life sucks sometimes and life is hard, but life is so much better with a buddy. And it, it's really worth taking those leaps to try and make that connection to someone else. Um, and worth working through stuff together, uh, you know, working through relationship things um, to, you know, find a companion, to find someone to to do it with. And yeah, I don't know. I just found it at every turn. I was expecting Palm Springs to go one way and it went the other way. And it was always a pleasant surprise every time it, it would kind of, um, I don't know, take take the road less traveled and uh, move to somewhere that was really delightful, but also kind of thematically satisfying. And I also found it really emotionally moving. I, I think it it takes its time to kind of quiet down and let you get to know these characters a bit on the inside. Um, and there are things in the movie that are not explained that I think are just there because they're beautiful. Um, I don't know. I, I really appreciated that about the film. So I love it. Yeah, it's a great one. You know, you know, it's funny. I'm looking over my list and like half the films on it played at Sundance. <laughs> um, 
Um, we saw these in a theater and they stuck with it. Well, they did, but also yeah. like, you know, so many movies were moved this year. They were moved yeah. out of 2020. So, I mean, maybe this year, this list looks really different had the year not been screwed over by COVID, but, um, yeah, I mean, you know, there are no block, but like, there's no Mission Impossible Fallout or anything on the on our list. Yeah, there's year. no blockbusters. Um, you know, and I mean, there were there were films that like that that definitely like you know the thing was there there was there's still no shortage of good films. Like, you know, just to give you an idea of films that didn't quite make my top ten, uh, Emma was on there. Bill and Ted Face the Music, uh, Enola Holmes, uh, Charm City Kings. Uh, so there were a lot of, you know, there were good movies this year. They just, it was a lot of the, you know, it's just weird how it shook, shook out. <laughs> yeah. I echo those honorable mentions and, uh, would add, I really enjoyed happy a season, even though I had some problems with the ending. I, I, I really kind of delighted in that film. Um, something like Eurovision was a lot of fun. I think fun was in short supply this year. Yeah. And as Nola you mentioned, Holmes was a lot of fun and Nola Holmes was so fun. And that was a Warner Brothers release. We were talking earlier about Warner Brothers. That would have been a really great film for them, because uh, I think that's a really good film. So yeah. Um, I you also wanted to make. Earlier, we were talking about it on our Skype. You didn't miss an episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, I wanted to make one special designation because I was going back and forth on whether to include this or not, and I know in I included David Byrne's American Utopia, but Hamilton is a masterpiece. <laughs> Hamilton. <laughs> it, it is this masterful, it is one of the best pieces of art ever made, I think. Um, and I wasn't quite sure whether it like fit on my list as a top 10, uh, and I think the direction of it is uh, incredible, I think you know, the, the Disney plus version does add some dimensionality to it. So I don't know what, how I'm going to do this in writing, but I, you know, special designation to Hamilton, which yeah, is just why not? great. Um, well, my, my computer's about to run out of battery, so we should probably wrap up this show, <laughs> uh, before I am just cut off. Um, thank you all so much for listening this year. This year has been a really tough year. Um, and, uh, we just, we wish you all the best in 2021. You, you deserve it. Um, hopefully, you know, the vaccine will, will be rolled out in a smooth, efficient manner and, uh, we can start going back to movies and start being with friends and family again. And, and, um, you know, you can listen to us, you know, jabber about Marvel movies, which is what <laughs> you're really here for. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, if you, if you listen to the show for any reason, we are grateful and, uh, we we're excited to be with you next year. So, um, with that, uh, if you want to keep up with this podcast, you should follow us on Twitter. Adam, where can we find you on Twitter? At Adam Chitwood. You can find me at Matt Goldberg. Happy New Year, everyone. We'll see you next week.